In Philip Yancey's book, Reaching for the Invisible God, he tells a story about post-World War II Paris, France. The city had been occupied by the Nazis and was in pretty bad shape following the war, the situation that we might liken to what Kyiv, Ukraine, will be like uh, after the Russian invasion. But there were homeless people, there were beggars all over the streets. And there was a man in the French parliament, a man of noble birth named Pierre, who was taken by the plight of these beggars in the streets. And he tried to get his people in parliament to care about this and to do something. But there was no response from them. And so in disgust, he resigned his post and realized that he needed to realign to a different course of action. And he became a Catholic friar. And he went out into the streets to organize the beggars and to help them to become more efficient in collecting the rags and the bottles that they used to have some way of life. And he put them in touch with hotels and businesses, and they became efficient at processing these things. Eventually, they got hold of some discarded brick, and they were able to build a warehouse to do this work. And a key principle in all of, the, all of this was that each beggar was to become responsible for another poorer beggar. That was how this whole thing worked. And as they continued along for several years, eventually there were no longer any of these poor beggars on the streets. They had solved the problem. But because of this key principle, this was actually a really bad situation for Pierre and for his people. He said, I must find somebody for my beggars to help. If I don't find people worse off than my beggars, this movement could turn inward. They'll become a powerful, rich organization and the whole spiritual impact will be lost. They'll have no one to serve. And so eventually Pierre was in touch with a leper colony in Velour, India, 5,000 miles away. They needed a new ward built on their hospital so that they could care for leprosy patients. And so Pierre signed on his crew to build this hospital ward. And of course, there was much gratitude for them when they had done so. But Pierre's response to that gratitude was to say, No, it is you who have saved us. We must serve or die. Well, since September, we've been focusing on the minor prophets. We call them minor because of the relative length of the books that they write, not the importance of their message. And here in our final installment of this Together for the 757 sermon series, we'll be looking at three post-exilic prophets. And we call them post-exilic because they write after the time of Judah's exile in Babylon. So just a little reminder of some history of the nation of Israel to help put that in, in place for us here. Remember, after King David's son Solomon ruled in Israel, the nation was divided. It was divided into a northern kingdom known as Israel or Ephraim and a southern kingdom, Judah. And the northern kingdom was away from the center of religious activity, Jerusalem, and they drifted quickly. They were in idolatry. Their kings were wicked, evil men. The Bible tells us that. And because of their wickedness, their waywardness, in 721 BC, God judged them through the empire of Assyria, this brutal nation that Nahum and the prophet Jonah tell us about. But meanwhile, in the southern kingdom, though the northern kingdom had 
disappeared at that point, never to be heard from again, other than, you know, Samaria in the time of Jesus and Galilee of the Gentiles. The southern kingdom was more faithful, and they had worshipped God, at least in part. They had kings who were good, along with some kings who were evil. And so, uh, unfortunately, they drifted as well, and the new empire on the scene, Babylon, came in and during about a 20-year period, 605 B.C. to 586 B.C. They robbed the temple. They took Jewish people away to Babylon. And eventually they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple with it. And the Jews were in Babylon for 70 years. And then the Persian Empire overtook Babylon. And Cyrus of Persia made a declaration that the Jews could return to their land. And what they came back to was a waste and a ruin occupied by foreigners, and it was a hard situation. There was no temple. There were no city walls. They had to build everything back up from scratch. And so in 20 years of being there, the temple had still not been built. And so this is why the prophets Zechariah and Haggai, the post-exilic prophets, come on the scene to deal with this issue of this delay in rebuilding the temple. And so today we begin our study by looking at Haggai. We'll look at Haggai this week and next week. And uh, we'll be looking in Haggai chapter 1 today. But our big idea is that to be who God made us to be, we must put God first in everything and humbly realign as needed. And so as you're turning here toward Haggai chapter 1, just one other fun fact about this book in this time period. We have lots of extra biblical evidence, documents, artifacts that back up everything I've just told you about this history. They, that go right along with what the scriptures say about the things that happened here. And Haggai himself gives us the specific dates. He tells you the very day when he pronounced the four prophecies we see recorded in his book. And so... This is a time period in a book that just reinforces the great confidence we have in the scriptures and what they tell us. But Haggai chapter 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So the fundamental issue here is that the people had delayed for 20 years to rebuild the temple. And they had done that, perhaps with good reason. They were attending to their daily lives, and you could understand in the ruinous condition that they came back to why, yeah, some basic shelter, uh, finding a way to provide food, uh, you know, these basic necessities could occupy them for a time. But there's a difference of opinion here about timing. And we see it in verse 2. God says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's never a good thing when God quotes you back to yourself. The problem here with this people was they had gone beyond basic necessities. The best clue for us about that here in the text is that he refers to their paneled houses. Paneling in, in houses back then was uh, a luxury. The main building material was stone and it was cold and it was hard, but it did the job of keeping the wet and the cold out. If you put paneling on it, though, it would make things look nicer. It made things warmer and cozier, kind of deafened the sound a little bit. But it's a luxury item. It wasn't necessary for them to have a dry, warm place to sleep. And so this is an indication that their hearts have drifted from their priority with God. And you can imagine that after maybe 20 days, they might have started thinking about, yeah, we should attend to this most important communal need of the temple. But 20 years had passed, and still there was no plan for completion. There was no design for what was going to take place. And so the people seem to have just lost sight of what their calling was as God's people. And you know, you can imagine why this might be. They walk past the, the temple site day by day and oh, just feel that, that emotion in their hearts, the regret, the, the sadness of what used to be but isn't any longer. And, and just the overwhelm of how are we going to restore this to its former glory? But then one day comes when they walk past and either because of the negativity of those thoughts, they just want to avoid them. So they turn their mind to something else or they're just preoccupied. They're thinking about well, how am I going to put food on the table today? How am I going to put up some nice paneling in my house? And the temple is forgotten. And then the next day, it's the same thing. And then the day after that, before they know it, it's out of sight and out of mind and 20 years have passed. And the people are no longer devoted to God. The problem here is that the temple in this time period in the Old Testament, the temple is the house of God. It's where his presence dwells. It's the heart of the spiritual aspect of the nation. And God had raised Israel up from one man 
and then selectively crafted that genealogy. He redeemed them out of Egypt and sustained them in hard times, protected them against people, led them into the promised land, brought them back miraculously from exile in Babylon. The northern kingdom is gone, but these folks get another chance and they blow it. <laughs> they have been called to be God's people and to demonstrate his glory to the world. And they neglect the opportunity to do it. Their dismissiveness is astounding. And it's even maddening. It brings to mind the office worker Bartleby the Scrivener in Herman Melville's short story by that name. Bartleby is this enigmatic man who every time he's given a task to do in the office, he simply replies, I would prefer not to. And there's this passive aggressiveness in it, and nobody knows what to do with him. There's no way to make him do what he's supposed to do to, to uphold his responsibility. He just prefers not to. And we see the same thing here with Israel, that they just have set their priorities on other things. Well, God needs to give them a wake-up call here, and he does it. We see it twice. He says, consider your ways. And in verse 4, he tells them specifically what he wants them to consider. They'd become dull to conviction. And so God calls them out now. He says, you need to think carefully about what you're doing because you are not in line with what you've been called to do. And we can see here the importance that reflection has in our spiritual lives. That as we try to live out lives according to the Holy Spirit, that measure up to the standard of Christ, an impossible standard, something we cannot do in ourselves, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to do, we need to reflect on a regular basis so we know what to pray about, that we know what to ask help for, that we know what to give thanks for. And we also have a, a way to plan how to fix the things in our lives that need to be realigned to who God is and what he calls his people to. And when we think about reflection, if you're anything like me, you, you probably automatically consider it on an individual level. You think about the things that you can control and the things that affect you. And certainly we all have that obligation, we have that responsibility to reflect and to do well as individuals, but there's also a communal level to this, a together concept where we have to reflect. See, it's, it's so easy for us to just kind of look around as we, as we try to figure out how to live our lives in such a dark and difficult world at times, and we just begin to look at other people. And certainly God can use other people to encourage us and to guide us, but they are not our standard. Our standard is Christ. And too often we measure ourselves against other people around us about the standards of the community. And we can also fall into groupthink where we just begin to follow the flow of what other people around us are thinking and saying and doing rather than asking critical questions and trying to answer those questions and considering alternate points of view and even speaking up when something just doesn't smell right or seem right within our community. And so there's a danger for us to be communal and not reflect. 
But when we do reflect, then there's such power in it where we can encourage one another and, and give accountability to each other and move forward together in unity. It's one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us, the church, that we have that community that we can reflect together. Whether it's individual or it's corporate, reflection keeps us on track with God. Well, it's silly that this people needs this wake-up call because it should have been obvious to them that they needed some outside help anyway because things are so futile for them. Life is hard, and they have not been successful. They've tried to fill their bellies, but they're hungry. They've gone out and worked the land, but it has not provided its bounty. And they have huddled in their homes, nicely paneled, but they do not stay warm there. They can't get ahead, and life is futile. And so the natural inclination for us when things are hard like that, isn't that when a lot of people cry out to God, even though they don't necessarily follow him on a consistent basis? It's when you're really at rock bottom or between a rock and a hard place, that's when you cry out to God a lot of times. And I, So I'm not recommending that. God wants us, he wants all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. He doesn't just want us to resort to him as the last option. But he still wants to provide for us when we need it. That's who he is. He's a good father. He is our provider. He's the one who created everything good. And he provides every good and perfect gift. And so if we don't seek him, then that's an affront to him. It's the height of unbelief for us to seek to have our needs met elsewhere. Or to try to, try to be self-sufficient. That's a complete rebellion against who God is and who he wants to be in our lives. And defiance of the Lord makes sustained prosperity impossible. There's a natural law to that. Just if you do things the wrong way, it's going to catch up to you eventually. There's going to be a check to pay at some point. But then there's a spiritual aspect to it as well where God simply isn't going to bless defiance and rebellion. It's any of us who are parents understand this, right? Or if you've taken care of children, if you have a selfish and defiant child, you don't give the child whatever he asks for because it will only reinforce that bad behavior. And God knows that he can't be generous with an ungrateful and irreverent people. And so he tries to get their attention. He makes their lives difficult, not out of spite, not to be mean, but because he loves them. He wants something better for them. He wants to awaken in them the heart of faith that was there. He wants to reignite it, but it's been long buried. It's been extinguished by the cares of the world, by their focus on keeping up their daily lives. He wants that to bloom afresh for them. And so he uses nature to get their attention, this drought. And then he uses Haggai to get their attention. And then he'll use Zechariah to encourage them in doing the right things. And we see God's grace and love just pouring out on his people when they're in a dark spot, when they're in the midst of futility here. Well, there isn't always a happy ending when we see God pour out his grace and his love like that. Uh, too often we want to do things our own way or sometimes we just focus on we want the goodies. We're going to seek out power and we're going to seek out wealth and we, we go after the wrong things. We have misplaced priorities. But Jesus, when specifically he was asked about 
uh, people having food to eat and clothe on their back, clothing on their backs. In Matthew 6.33, he tells us how this does end happily. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And so the way that we receive the things that we need is by devotion to God. We don't do it for that purpose. Obviously, the, the whole point is devotion to God, right? But if we chase wealth and power and basic necessities in their own sake, then they're hollow and they're elusive. God may grant those things to us, especially things like wealth and power. He, he may grant them to us. He may not. But the whole point is that we're seeking him, right? Some translations of Matthew 6.33 say that all these things will be added to you, which I think points up better what the whole purpose of the statement is. It's seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the, the greatest benefit that we receive is relationship with God. It's that we enjoy relationship with the king and with the righteous one. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And so that's the idea here that the point is to seek after God and and the other details will be taken care of. Their misplaced priorities here in Haggai's time, if they just realign to who they're supposed to be in God, then everything will be all right. And we see it in verse 12. They do it. It works. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. The people feared the Lord. And so then we see in verse 13 that when that happens, God says, I am with you. It's relationship. He's there in their presence. They are willing to honor him. And so he comes where he is wanted. God comes where he is wanted. They embrace his presence. They put him first in everything. And now they get to work. And we see that within a little over three weeks time by the end of the chapter they have gotten their materials together and they set to work that is a good response they are serious about realigning and moving forward with God and what he's called them to do better late than never right well as we think about who God has made us to be and how all of this speaks into that there are things that God has created you to do that only you can do. Isn't that amazing? That there are things that are to take place in this world, here and now, that will have an impact in eternity, of course, that only you can accomplish. That's amazing. And it's a great demonstration of God's care and his love and his intricate design of each one of us. And so imagine for a moment the joy and the fulfillment that would come being in the sweet spot of what God has created you to do and his presence there with you to energize you and for you to delight in as you do whatever he's called you to. Imagine surrendering to God's spirit as it directs you into unexpected places and unexpected opportunities and the opportunity for impact that you can have 
when you just follow, even though it maybe doesn't even make sense. Imagine struggling in futility and discouragement, but not wallowing in it, and instead considering your ways, reflecting on what's going on around you, what you're doing, and is there something that you need to realign to the standard of Jesus? And imagine knowing that God's presence is there with you and that you can call out to him in the midst of futility and discouragement and trust him to be with you and to care for you as you seek him and his righteousness. We've all been given a sacred responsibility and a sacred trust, not to build a temple, not to build up a nation, but to build up people and to build and invest in a kingdom And if we do not serve, we die. Just like Abbe Pierre in Paris directed his beggar army that they needed to invest in others. They needed to be responsible for others. We are responsible for our fellow man. And we have work to do for the kingdom in the lives of people. It's a great opportunity that we have. It's an amazing adventure that he's called us to, and we get to go on it together. He has equipped us and empowered us together to do this work. And so let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as we do it. Lord God, we thank you for what you've called us to be and to do for your kingdom. And we pray that you would enable us and empower us. We pray that you would help us to keep our priorities straight, that you would be first and foremost in everything, and that we would not let other things creep in and distract us and hinder our devotion to you and our service in your name. God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray for your blessing that you would be glorified through us. We pray in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen.